Psychology as the Viewerist Views It, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ope123. Psychology as the Viewerist Views It, Part 2. By John B. Watson. 1913. First published in Psychological Review, 20, 158 to 177. The psychology which I should attempt to build up would take as a starting point, first, the observable fact that organisms, man and animal alike, do adjust themselves to their environment by means of hereditary and habit equipments. These adjustments may be very adequate, or they may be so inadequate that the organism barely maintains its existence. Secondly, that certain stimuli lead the organisms to make the responses. In a system of psychology completely worked out, given the response the stimuli can be predicted, given the stimuli the response can be predicted. Such a state of statements is crass and raw and extreme, as all such generalizations must be. Yet, they are hardly more raw and less realizable than the ones which appear in the psychology texts of the day. I possibly might illustrate my point better by choosing an everyday problem which anyone is likely to meet in the course of his work. Some time ago, I was called upon to make a study of certain species of birds. Until I went to Tartagus, I had never seen these birds alive. When I reached there, I found the animals doing certain things. Some of the acts seemed to work particularly well in such an environment, while others seemed to be unsuited to their type of life. I first studied the responses of the group as a whole, and later those of individuals. In order to understand more thoroughly the relation between what was habit and what was hereditary in these responses, I took the young birds and reared them. In this way, I was able to study the order of appearance of hereditary adjustments and their complexity, and later the beginnings of habit formation. My efforts in determining the stimuli which called forth such adjustments were crude indeed. Consequently, my attempts to control behavior and to produce responses at will did not meet with much success. Their food and water, sex and other social relations, light and temperature conditions were all beyond control in a field study. I did find it possible to control their reactions in a measure by using the nest and egg, or young, as a stimuli. It is not necessary in this paper to develop further how such a study should be carried out and how work of this kind must be supplemented by carefully controlled laboratory experiments. Had I been called upon to examine the natives of some of the Australian tribes, I should have gone about my task in the same way. I should have found the problem more difficult. The types of responses called forth by physical stimuli would have been more varied, and the number of effective stimuli larger. I should have had to determine the social setting of their lives in a far more careful way. These savages would be more influenced by the responses of each other than was the case with the birds. Furthermore, habits would have been more complex and the influence of past habits upon the present responses would have appeared more clearly. Finally. If I had been called upon to work out the psychology of the educated European, my problem would have required several lifetimes. But in the one I have at my disposal, I should have followed the same general line of attack. 
In the main, my desire in all such work is to gain an accurate knowledge of adjustments and the stimuli calling them forth. My final reason for this is to learn general and particular methods by which I may control behavior. My goal is not the description and explanation of state of consciousness as such, nor that of obtaining such proficiency in mental gymnastics that I can immediately lay hold of a state of consciousness and say, this as a whole consists of grey sensation number 350 of such and such extent, occurring in conjunction with the sensation of cold of a certain intensity, one of pressure of a certain intensity and extent, and so ad infinitum. If psychology would follow the plan I suggest, the educator, the physician, the jurist, and the businessman could utilize our data in a practical way, as soon as we are able experimentally to update them. Those who have occasion to apply psychological principles practically would find no need to complain, as they do at the present time. Ask any physician or jurist today whether scientific psychology plays a practical part in his daily routine, and you will hear him deny that the psychology of the laboratories find a place in his scheme of work. I think the criticism is extremely just. One of the earliest conditions which made me dissatisfied with psychology was the feeling that there was no realm of application for the principles which were being worked out in content terms. What gives me hope that the behaviorist disposition is a defensible one is the fact that those branches of psychology which have already partially withdrawn from the parent experimental psychology and which are consequently less dependent upon introspection are today in a most flourishing condition. Experimental pedagogy, the psychology of drugs, the psychology of advertising, legal psychology, the psychology of tests, and psychopathology are all vigorous growths. These are sometimes wrongly called practical or applied psychology. Surely, there was never a worse misnomer. In the future, there may grow up vocational bureaus which really apply psychology. At present, these fields are truly scientific and are in search of broad generalizations which will lead to the control of human behavior. For example, we find out by experimentation whether a series of stanzas may be acquired more readily if the whole is learned at once, or whether it is more advantageous to learn each stanza separately and then pass to the succeeding. We do not attempt to apply our findings. The application of this principle is purely voluntary on the part of the teacher. In the psychology of drugs, we may show the effect upon behavior of certain doses of caffeine we may reach the conclusion that caffeine has a good effect upon the speed and accuracy of work. But these are general principles. We leave it to the individual as to whether the results of our tests shall be applied or not. Again, in legal testimony, we test the effects of recency upon the reliability of a witness's report. We test the accuracy of the report with respect to moving objects, stationary objects, color, etc., it depends upon the judiciary machinery of the country to decide whether these facts are ever to be applied. For a pure psychologist to say that he is not interested in the questions raised in these divisions of the science because they relate indirectly to the application of psychology shows, in the first place, that he fails to understand the scientific aim in such problems, and secondly, that he is not interested in a psychology which concerns itself with human life. The only fault I have to find with these disciplines is that much of their material is stated in terms of introspection, whereas a statement in terms of objective results would be far more valuable. 
there is no reason why appeal should ever be made to consciousness in any of them, or why introspective data should ever be sought during experimentation or published in the results. In experimental pedagogy especially one can see the desirability of keeping all of the results on a purely objective plan. If this is done, work there on the human being will be comparable directly with the work upon animals. For example, at Hopkins, Mr. Ulrich has obtained certain results upon the distribution of effort in learning, using rats as subjects. He is prepared to give comparative results upon the effect of having an animal work at the problem once per day, three times per day, and five times per day. Whether it is advisable to have the animal learn only one problem at a time or to learn three abreast. We need to have similar experiments made upon man, but we care as little about his conscious processes during the conduct of the experiment as we care about such processes in the rats. I am more interested at the present moment in trying to show the necessity for maintaining uniformity in experimental procedure and in the method of stating results in both human and animal work than in developing any ideas that I may have upon the changes which are certain to come in the scope of human psychology. Let us consider for a moment the subject of the range of stimuli to which animals respond. I shall speak first of the work upon vision in animals. We put our animal in a situation where he will respond, or learn to respond, to one of the two monochromatic lights. We feed him at one, positive, and punish him at the other, negative. In a short time, the animal learns to go to the light at which he is fed. At this point, questions arise which I may phrase in two ways. I may choose the psychological way and say, Does the animal see these two lights as I do, that is, as two distinct colors, or does he see them? as to grace differing in brightness, as does the totally color-blind. Phrased by the behaviorist, it would read as follows, Is my animal responding upon the basis of the difference in intensity between the two stimuli, or upon the difference in wavelengths? He nowhere thinks of the animal's response in terms of his own experiences of colors and grays. He wishes to establish the fact whether wavelength is a factor in that animal's adjustment. If so, what wavelengths are effective, and what differences in wavelength must be maintained in the different regions to afford basis for differential responses? If wavelength is not a factor in adjustment, he wishes to know what difference in intensity will serve as a basis for response, and whether that same difference will suffice throughout the spectrum. Furthermore, he wishes to test whether the animal can respond to wavelengths which do not affect the human eye. He is as much interested in comparing the red spectrum with that of the chick as in comparing it with man's. The point of view, when the various sets of comparisons are made, does not change in the slightest. However, we phrase the question to ourselves. We take our animal after the association has been formed and then introduce certain control experiments which enable us to return answers to the questions just raised. But there is just as keen a desire on our part to test man under the same conditions and to state the results in both cases in common terms. The man and the animal should be placed as nearly as possible under the same experimental conditions. 
instead of feeding or punishing the human subject we should ask him to respond by setting a second apparatus until standard and control offered no basis for a differential response do i lay myself open to the charge here that i am using introspection my reply is not at all that while i might very well feed my human subject for a right choice and punish him for a wrong one and thus produce the response if the subject could give it there is no need of going to extremes even on the platform i suggest but be it understood that i am merely using this second method as an abridged behavior method we can go just as far and reach just as dependable results by the longer method as by the abridged in many cases the direct and typically human method cannot be safely used suppose for example that i doubt the accuracy of the setting of the control instrument in the above experiments as i am very likely to do if i suspect a defect in vision it is hopeless for me to get his introspective report he will say there is no difference in sensation both are reds identical in quality but suppose i confront him with the standard and the control and so arrange conditions that he is punished if he responds to the control but not with the standard i interchange the positions of the standard and the control at will and force him to attempt to differentiate the one from the other if he can learn to make the adjustment even after a large number of trials it is evident that the two stimuli do afford the basis for a differential response such a method may sound nonsensical but i firmly believe we will have to resort increasingly to just such method where we have reason to distrust the language method there is hardly a problem in human vision which is not also a problem in animal vision i mentioned the limits of the spectrum threshold values absolute and relative flicker talbot's law weber's law field of vision the parkinson phenomena etc everyone is capable of being worked out by behavior methods many of them are being worked out at the present time i feel that all the work upon the senses can be consistently carried forward along the lines i have suggested here for vision our results will in the end give an excellent picture of what each organ stands for in the way of function the anatomist and the physiologist may take our data and show on the one hand the structures which are responsible for these responses and on the other the physics chemical relations which are necessarily involved physiological chemistry of nerve and muscle in these and other reactions the situation in regard to the study of memory is hardly different nearly all of the memory methods in actual use in the laboratory today yield the type of results i am arguing for a certain series of nonsense syllables or other material is presented to the human subject what should receive the emphasis are the rapidity of the habit formation the errors peculiarities in the form of the curve the persistence of the habit so formed the relation of such habits to those formed when more complex material is used etc now such results are taken down with the subject's introspection the experiments are made for the purpose of discussing the mental machinery involved in learning in recall recollection and forgetting and not for the purpose of seeking the human being's way of shaping his responses to meet the problem in the terribly complex environment into which he is thrown nor for that of showing the similarities and differences between man's methods and those of other animals the situation is somewhat different when i come to a study of the more complex forms of behavior such as imagination judgment reasoning and conception 
At present, the only statements we have of them are in content terms. Our minds have been so warped by the fifty-odd years which have been devoted to the study of state of consciousness that we can envisage these problems only in one way. We should meet the situation squarely and say that we are not able to carry forward investigations along of these lines by the behavior methods which are in use at the present time. In extenuation, I should like to call attention to the paragraph above, where I made the point that the introspective method itself has reached a cul-de-sac with respect to them. The topics have become so threadbare from much handling that they may well be put away for a time. As our methods become better developed, it will be possible to undertake investigations of more and more complex forms of behavior. Problems which are now laid aside will again become imperative, but they can be viewed as they arise from a new angle and in more concrete settings. Will there be left over in psychology a world of pure psychics, to use your key star? I confess I do not know. The plans which I most favor for psychology lead practically to the ignoring of consciousness in the sense that that term is used by psychologists today. I have virtually denied that this realm of psychics is open to experimental investigation. I do not wish to go further into the problem at present because it leads inevitably over into metaphysics. If you will grant the behaviorist the right to use consciousness in the same way that other natural scientists employ it, that is, without making consciousness a special object of observation, you have granted all that my thesis requires. In concluding, I suppose I must confess to a deep bias on these questions. I have devoted nearly twelve years to experimentation on animals. It is natural that such a one should drift into a theoretical position which is in harmony with his experimental work. Possibly I have put up a straw man and have been fighting that. There may be no absolute lack of harmony between the position outlined here and that of functional psychology. I am inclined to think, however, that the two positions cannot be easily harmonized. Certainly, the position I advocate is weak enough at present and can be attacked from many standpoints. Yet, when all this is admitted, I still feel that the considerations which I have urged should have a wide influence upon the type of psychology which is to be developed in the future. What we need to do is to start work upon psychology, making behavior, not consciousness, the objective point of our attack. Certainly, there are enough problems in the control of behavior to keep us all working many lifetimes without ever allowing us time to think of consciousness and such. Once launched in the undertaking, we will find ourselves in a short time as far divorced from an introspective psychology as the psychology of the present time is divorced from faculty psychology. Summary 1. Human psychology has failed to make good its claim as a natural science. Due to a mistaken notion that its fields of facts are conscious phenomena, and that introspection is the only direct method of ascertaining these facts, it has enmeshed itself in a series of speculative questions which, while fundamental to its present tenets, are not open to experimental treatment. In the pursuit of answers to these questions, it has become further and further divorced from contact with problems which vitally concern human interest. 2. Psychology as the behaviorist views it 
is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science which needs introspection as little as do the sciences of chemistry and physics it is granted that the behavior of animals can be investigated without appeal to consciousness heretofore the viewpoint has been that such data have value only in so far as they can be interpreted by analogy in terms of consciousness the position is taken here that the behavior of man and the behavior of animals must be considered on the same plane as being equally essential to a general understanding of behavior it can dispense with consciousness in a psychological sense the separate observation of states of consciousness is on this assumption no more a part of the task of the psychologist than of the physicist we might call this the return to a non-reflective and naive use of consciousness in this sense consciousness may be said to be the instrument or tool with which all scientists work whether or not the tool is properly used at present by scientists is a problem for philosophy and not for psychology three from the viewpoint here suggested the facts on the behavior of amoeba have value in and for themselves without reference to the behavior of man in biology studies on race differentiation and inheritance in amoeba form a separate division of study which must be evaluated in terms of the laws found there the conclusions so reached may not hold in any other form regardless of the possible lack of generality such studies must be made if evolution as a whole is ever to be regulated and controlled similarly the laws of behavior in amoeba the range of responses and the determination of effective stimuli of habit formation persistency of habits interference and reinforcements of habits must be determined and evaluated in and for themselves regardless of their generality or of their bearing upon such laws in other forms if the phenomena of behavior are ever to be brought within the sphere of scientific control four the suggested elimination of states of consciousness as proper objects of investigation in themselves will remove the barrier from psychology which exists between it and the other sciences the findings of psychology become the functional correlates of structure and lend themselves to explanation in physico-chemical terms five psychology as behavior will after all have to neglect but few of the really essential problems with which psychology as an introspective science now concerns itself in all probability even this residue of problems may be phrased in such a way that refined methods in behavior which certainly must come will lead to their solution references one that is either directly upon the conscious state of the observer or indirectly upon the conscious state of the experimenter two in this connection i call attention to the controversy now on between the adherents and the opposers of evangelist thought the types of reactors sensory and motor were also matters of bitter dispute the complication experiment was the source of another war of words concerning the accuracy of the opponent's introspection three my colleague professor h c warren by whose advice this article was offered to the review believes that the parallelist can avoid the interaction terminology completely by exercising a little care four he would have exactly the same attitude as if he were conducting an experiment to show whether an ant would crawl over a pencil laid across the trail or go round it five i should prefer to look upon this abbreviated matter 
where the human subject is told in words, for example, to equate two stimuli, or to state in words whether a given stimulus is present or absent, etc., as the language method in behavior. It in no way changes the status of experimentation. The method becomes possible merely by virtue of the fact that, in the particular case, the experimenter and his animal have systems of abbreviations or shorthand behavior signs, language, any one of which may stand for a habit belonging to the repetitor, both of the experimenter and his subject. To make the data obtained by the language method virtually the whole of the behavior, or to attempt to mold all of the data obtained by other methods in terms of the one which has by all odds the most limited range, is putting the cart before the horse with a vengeance. 6. They are often undertaken apparently for the purpose of making crude pictures of what must or must not go in the nervous system. 7. There is need of questioning more and more the existence of what psychology calls imagery. Until a few years ago, I thought that centrally aroused visual sensations were as clear as those peripherally aroused. I had never accredited myself with any other kind. However, closer examination leads me to deny in my own case the presence of a misery in the Galtonian sense. The whole doctrine of the centrally aroused images, I believe at present, on a very insecure foundation. Ansel, as well as Farnald, reached the conclusion that an objective determination of image type is impossible. It would be an interesting confirmation of their experimental work if we should find by degrees that we have been mistaken in building up this enormous structure of the centrally aroused sensation or image. The hypothesis that all of the so-called higher thought processes go on in terms of fatery statements of the original muscular act, including speech here, and that these are integrated into systems which respond in serial order associative mechanisms, is, I believe, a tenable one. It makes reflective processes as mechanical as habit. The scheme of habit which James long ago described, where each return or afferent current releases the next appropriate motor teachers, is as true for thought processes, as for overt muscular acts. Positive imagery would be the rule. In other words, wherever there are thought processes, there are faint contractions of the systems of musculature involved in the overt exercise of the customary act, and especially in the still finer systems of musculature involved in speech. If this is true, and I do not see how it can be gainsaid, imagery becomes a mental luxury, even if it really exists, without any functional significance whatever. If experimental procedures justify this hypothesis, we shall have at hand tangible phenomena which may be studied as behavior material. I should say that the day when we can study reflective processes by such methods is about as far off as the day when we can tell by physico-chemical methods the difference in the structure and arrangement of molecules between living protoplasm and inorganic substances. The solutions of both problems await the advent of methods and apparatus. After writing this paper, I heard the addresses of Professors Thorndike and Angel at the Cleveland meeting of the American Psychological Association. I hope to have the opportunity to discuss them at another time. I must even here attempt to answer one question raised by Thorndike. Thorndike cast suspicions upon ideomotor action. If by ideomotor action he means just that and would not include sensory motor action in his general denunciation, I heartily agree with him. 
as you throw out misery altogether and attempt to show that practically all natural thought goes on in terms of sensory motor processes in the larynx, but not in terms of a measless thought, which rarely come to consciousness in any person who has not grabbed for misery in the psychological laboratory. This easily explains why so many of the well-educated lady know nothing of misery. I doubt if Thorndike concepts the matter in this way. He and Woodward seem to have neglected the speech mechanisms. It has been shown that improvement in habit comes unconsciously. The first we know of it is when it is achieved, when it becomes an object. I believe that consciousness has just as little to do with improvement in thought processes. Since, according to my view, thought processes are really motor habits in the larynx, improvements, shortcuts, changes, etc., in these habits are brought about in the same way that such changes are produced in other motor habits. This view carries with it the implication that there are no reflective processes, centrally initiated processes. The individual is always examining objects. In the one case, objects in the now accepted sense. In the other, they are substitutes, namely, the movements in the speech musculature. From this, it follows that there is no theoretical limitation of the behavior method. There remains, to be sure, the practical difficulty which may never be overcome of examining speech movements in the way that general bodily behavior may be examined. And of psychology as the behaviorist views it, part two.